everybody. Uh, thank you. My name. Thank you for attending. My name is Luke Meller. I'm the marketing director for Pantonium, and today we have a very juicy topic. It is uh, public transit privatization and on-demand transit. And uh, today we are joined uh, by, uh, first of all, Jeremy Eves, who's the head of sales um, at Pantonium. And we are joined by uh, by three special guests who have uh, who have given us their their time today. Um, firstly, we have uh, Michael Mosley, uh, who's hailing from the city of Stratford. He's the manager of transit for the city of Stratford. Um, calling in from Alberta, uh, Canada, we have Tori Ayanna Saito, who is the manager of transit services uh, for the city of St. Albert. And then hailing in from uh, all the way from Arkansas is Joel Gardner, who is the executive director of Ozark Regional Transit, which is a uh, which covers the cities of uh, basically all of Northwest Ar Arkansas, including the cities of Fayetteville, uh, Springdale, Rogers, and and Bentonville. Now, today's topic was chosen by Pantonium mainly because of a letter that was that really shook up the transit industry in Ontario. So maybe not everybody is familiar with this because we have a, an international audience today. But basically, in, in August of this year, the Ontario Ministry of Transportation wrote a letter to the transit agencies of, of Ontario. And in that letter, they, they included a line that requested them, all transit agencies, to review their low-performing low uh, fixed routes um, and to see if they could economically replace them with a microtransit service. And this ignited a firestorm of debate all across Ontario. Um, and it was largely about the implication of privatization because even though Ontario did not, the, the Ontario Ministry of Transportation did not specifically say to privatize uh, transit, the uh, most people in the industry assumed that microtransit meant privatization. Now, Pantonium doesn't have any, uh, we're agnostic on privatization, but we were also not very sure what the transit industry themselves thought about these implications and thought of what they thought about this actual um, ask by a government agency to consider replacing traditional fixed route services with microtransit. So we wanted to bring together um, some of Pantonium's partners and clients today to discuss this and, and to really learn from them what they think of privatization and where they see uh, transit going in the future, especially with uh, th this ongoing pandemic impacting riderships and impacting the financial sustainability of transit. Um, so today we're going to have an, a very open discussion on these topics and hopefully learn something um, and take away uh, take away so some uh, some new understanding of how the private sector and the public sector can work together to make a more sustainable and and effective transit service. Uh, so with that, I'm going to hand things off to Jeremy, who's going to the kick off the uh, kick off the main discussion. Thanks a lot, Luke, and, and thanks to everyone uh, for joining as well as our special uh, panelists. The way the format's gonna be fairly conversational and I, I really just wanna learn a little bit more about what people think, right? And so I think that a lot of people that are on you know, the, the audience today, they're curious about different opinions and they wanna see you know, how do people make decisions and that's kind of where I wanna head. So first off, I'm gonna start with uh, Tori and, uh, and just say, you know, when someone says privatization and transit, what, is, what does that make you immediately think of when you say privatization? You asking me, Jeremy? Is that? Yeah. Oh, okay, sorry. 
All right. Well, it it can mean a, a lot of different things. I've worked both in the public transit setting where it was, the service was delivered by a municipal entity and it was completely owned and operated. So the operators were, were hired and trained by that municipality and the transit uh, agency. I've also worked in uh, uh, for a municipality like St. Albert where we own all the assets, meaning the buses, we own the garage, we own the hoist, and so forth, but we outsource or uh, the, the drivers and the operators. So that means we have a private sector contract uh, with uh, PWT, for example, Pacific Western, that provides the operators that drive our buses. So we're not responsible for hiring the operators. We're not responsible for discipline, any disciplinary action. We're not responsible or any union agreements between the two. So there's that barrier. We hire a private sector to provide that service for us and they in turn provide the infrastructure, meaning they, they provide us with an operations manager to oversee the operations. They have the route inspectors and so forth. So we provide them with the direction and the guidance as to what we're looking for. And there's a reporting system. And of course I manage the contracts, et cetera. And uh, that's how we deliver the service here. So it is a private, public, contractual service delivery model. And and for you, was that decision made before you joined St. Albert, or did yes. you were you part of it? Was yeah. It's it's been a long time since they had that. You know, that they've that. had a third party relationship. Yeah. Uh, and I'll switch over to Joel down in in Arkansas. Joel, uh, describe how your operation is run. Do you have any? private sector partners besides, you know, software and, and those types of things? Are there any operations that are, you know, provided by third parties? Uh, not in this particular location. Like at Lori, I've been on both sides of it, where we've had municipal, municipality run systems where everything from assets to, to the drivers are uh, owned and operated by the municipality and also where only the assets were owned by the municipality and then everything else was done through the transit management contract. Um, on my side, I was a first transit America's guy uh, for a number of years. And so I've seen both sides of the benefits of, depending on the location I was at, the, the benefits of either having everything run by the municipality or through the transit management contract. But when you bring up privatization, um, that word right there, the, and as it relates to uh, microtransit, the first thing that actually happens with me is I just start getting the heebie-jeebies over the fact that um, now we're talking about an unregulated, um, an unregulated asset that's sitting out there um, when it comes to the and I'm not digging on the Ubers and the Lyfts of the world, but when we look at those types of, of lack of regulations that are on those, whether it be drug testing, whether it be um, asset management, um, doing a micro transit in a public or municipality setting is a whole heck of a lot easier for me to wrap my brain cell around than for me to go ahead and say, oh, I wanna privatize something like that because now I, as a consumer, um, I will personally lose all faith and or credence in whether or not A, that vehicle's been serviced or B, that uh, driver's been drug tested and it can get me safely from, from point A to point B, not under the influence of anything. And those are probably two of the biggest things that uh, kind of screw with my brain cell when it comes to 
uh, privatization of a microtransit. And, and in, in your previous world, what benefits did you see of privatization? Um, the, working with the transit management uh, concept um, where we got to be the controllers of the personnel, uh, we got to handle the uh, union contracts, we got to handle the hiring, the firing, uh, everything uh, to that aspect. Um, it took, it was good for us to go ahead and have that delineation between the municipality and the personnel themselves, uh, as far as I was concerned. Um, when we're working with um, municipality type personnel that are in a public transit setting, I have a tendency to feel that the majority of the people that are working directly for the municipality will get their job because they know somebody, because they've got a friend of a friend who's been in uh, the municipality for an extended period of time. And there's a lot of influence that can come from uh, those higher ups in the municipality where when we're working with the transit management, it is the person with the best skills that comes through the door is the person that's brought in. Understood. And closer to home, uh, Michael, uh, down in Stratford, when, when, what was your thought when you saw this message um, from, the, from the province about, about funding and that type of thing? What, what kind of went through your head when you saw these notes, these notices? Well, both, uh, privatization, I, I think that's always been kind of talked about in the background for, for a long time. And, and anything private, usually the bottom line is the bottom line. It's about, you know, making a profit. Um, transit doesn't usually make a profit. Um, it, uh, it, it's always subsidized by, for us in Stratford, um, we own, it's all municipally run. It's, uh, we own all the assets, the employees. Um, there's no outsourcing um, as far as how the operation is run or how the operation is serviced. Um, and the, the, the privatization part seems to kind of come and go and has for a very long time. Um, and, and one has to wonder why it wasn't privatized beforehand. Um, uh, Joel made a, a lot of good points about, uh, you know, uh, using, you know, regulations and, and losing the rules. And, and for me, privatization, if, if it's going solely private, it's always about profitability. Um, uh, if it goes private, is it uh, now affordable to customers? Um, it's, it's for me all about the bottom line. So I, I really sit on the, on the, fence about it. Um, it's, it's fairly vague as far as um, really what this privatization mean and, and what happens to all the things that have been in place for decades and decades and decades. Um, it's, it's, it's a matter of what does it look like, uh, which I think is the bigger question. Do, do you think that microtransit and privatization go hand in hand? Or do you think that there's a, a way that you can have the same effect, like you can have benefits of, of having a private operator running microtransit or, and the city can see and does not lose the, the relationship with the customer. Um, you still get the efficiency benefits that you're looking for. Is there, is there a balance point there? Like, like um, Atore in St. Albert, he's, he's using PWT who is an operator, but he hasn't lost track of his transit. Like he, he still knows what his transit system is doing, right? Is, is microtransit 
Is it, is it have that capability, do you think? Uh, without seeing it firsthand, I, I think uh, it, it could strike a, a half decent balance. Um, it, uh, it apparently works uh, well in uh, St. Albert. Um, it's, it's for me personally, it's, it's that vision and, and what does this look like? Um, that would be, but is it a good balance? Sure, I'm sure it'd be, it could be a good balance. Um, it's uh, for me, it'd be a matter of what does it look like. And, and Tori, do you have a do you have a comment? I mean, I'm not saying that you're running all microtransit, right? Because PWT runs your your fixed routes and, and things like that too, right? So you're you're relying on that third party to kind of handle a lot of the administrative and operation components, but you you don't feel like you've lost touch with your customer base at the same time, right? No, not at all, because we, we design the service levels, we respond to customer inquiries. So we have a, a customer service portion there that uh, deals with uh, customer comments, feedback. They don't call PWT, they call us. So from a customer perspective, they really don't notice anything different. The service is delivered, the service design, we do it and uh, we schedule it. They just provide the drivers and manage that portion of our operations. We, we have our own mechanics, the buses are ours. From a customer perspective, they don't notice any different. And at least from my perspective, having worked in both uh, types of models, I don't notice you know, any difference in our service delivery model from a customer uh, perspective. And that, I didn't mention that we do have the Michael Transit operating here. So we are partnered with uh, Pantonium. We just started our on-demand service uh, late July of this year. So that's another aspect that we bring to the table as well. And it's a different contract that we would have with uh, Pantonium versus, you know, uh, our service delivery support our conventional services with uh, PWT. Um, you know, it, it's different. And the microtransit does take a little bit of getting used to, especially if our customers are used to a scheduled service. Um, but we found that once we were over that hump, um, it, it works very well. So I can't say from a customer perspective that they're really that much different. So from, from your perspective, this is not a privatization of transit. It is a, it's using new technology, using a good third party, you know, operator that you trust and, and you, you've seen the benefits all around, right? So. Right. So what I what comes to my mind when you talk about privatization is someone doing my job or, you know, someone taking over the whole business and, you know, they do everything from uh, plan, service planning, scheduling, managing the operations. And I did work for the Calgary Regional Partnership in the Calgary area. It was a nonprofit organization where we did go to a different model. We didn't own any assets and basically we put out a contract to run a pilot for us with the private sector to provide the vehicles, basically a turnkey operation where I just would manage that operation from, uh, from the partnership perspective. And it worked extremely well as well. So you can go to complete privatization to deliver the service and or a model where it's a combination or a complete uh, municipal I mean, you know, a lot of agencies want to retain control over it. And the model we have here in St. Albert, we're in full control. It's just, you know, we have that private contract to deliver uh, the drivers, uh, whether it's, you know, for Pantonium, uh, we, we use our, we use the drive DTL or Pacific Western drivers. So it's not like we have a different set of drivers for those. Uh, we use the same contract and it works extremely well. 
Joel, if, if you got a, a letter saying you need to look for efficiencies in, the, in, in underperforming routes, I mean, you, you and I have, have talked about this in, in full disclosure, you know, Ozark is a, a customer of Pantonium, um, but you were already looking for efficiencies before, right? So tell me a little bit about like, what kind of, what are you looking for when, if someone says we have to find efficiencies, what do you, what do you, what do you think when you, when you get that kind of request? Well, well, I hope I'm doing my job well enough that I'm already doing that before somebody gives me a letter that says that I got to start looking for efficiencies. Um, because if somebody from the outside actually has to go ahead and tell me that I got to start looking for efficiencies, then they should also finish that letter out with, you better start looking for another job uh, because <laughs> I'm not doing my damn job correctly. Um, so when, when we're actually looking for efficiencies, we're, we're actually looking to compare um, one route, of course, to the to the other, as far as boardings, speed boarding, uh, you know, boardings and lightings. Uh, we're looking for you know how many miles are we running uh, where we're actually not getting transporting any passengers during those miles. Um, you know how many segments of miles I'll say uh, where we're not transporting passengers. And we were looking into this for years. Um, I've only been here six years now, and we've been looking at it since I've been here. And finally, we're getting to the point to where we can start making effective changes through it. Um, watching the growth and development of our community, how it's uh, sprawling as opposed to urban rise. And then we started taking a look at uh, um, types of programs that we could um, implement. And that's when we came across Pantonium, I'm going to say, two years ago, and we started talking uh, with you guys about what we can and cannot be doing and what we should and should not be doing. And I can tell you this right now, just, you know, to be a, a Pantonium Kool-Aid drinker or cheerleader, um, the, inf the, the ability to switch some of our underperforming fixed routes into on-demand transit um, has made, uh, number one, the optics to the general public a whole heck of a lot better. Number two, the reliability of the trips a whole heck of a lot better. Um, I can say that we are, our on-time performance, because um, we're now measuring on-time performance in trip pickup uh, versus trip drop-off um, is, a, is, a, is amazingly better. Um, and the customer experience is much better also because we're able to use the, the freedom of the on-demand uh, transit to avoid the school gridlock zones, to avoid the, the heavy intersection freeway areas um, so that we can deliver our customer, deliver our, our, our passengers uh, to where they need to go. Um, hopefully I'm answering that question without sounding like I said too much of a Kool-Aid drinker or cheerleader for Pantonium. But the I, I, can't, I, can't slip you, I can't slip you any bills over, over video, but uh, you know, <laughs> I do, we do appreciate the support there. And I, and I want to make sure that, you know, like what does efficiency mean is, is really the question, right? Is it, is it all about the, the numbers? Like how, what is efficiency measured in? Maybe I'll, I'll move to Mike just to kind of, you know, well, reinforce well, that. And I, can, and I can brief that efficiency have, has two sides to it. It's got the statistical side and then it's got the, the emotional side that the uh, customer looks at on as far as efficiency, getting to where they want to go on time safely. And, and those customer complaints. Yeah. It's, it's not always about the cost per trip, right? Like you, you still yeah. need to be able to cover all your ridership, right? The people in, in your, in your area that rely on transit, if you start having to cut 
fixed routes, you need to have something in place to backstop that so they don't get left behind. And so, you know, I think that you and I have had several conversations about, about the importance of that, even to the effect of maybe even expanding your service areas, right? Yes. So Mike, um, is what you're doing right now with on-demand, do you consider that to be microtransit? Uh, yes, I do. Um, and, and we were in the, in the same uh, situation. You, you talk about efficiencies and one of the, <clears throat> excuse me, the, the complaints transit agencies get from the public or from, is like, why are your buses running around empty at certain times of the day? And um, one of the low hanging fruit for, for myself, and this is a process I started a couple years ago, was, was Sunday ridership. Um, I would say it wasn't efficient. Um, we, we used three buses on six routes for an hour service. So it could take you, depending what you wanted to do on a Sunday, it could take you an hour and a half to get from point A to point B. Um, now I, I consider Sundays uh, efficient on both sides from a, uh, from a costing operationally and, and from a service side of it where um, I'm one less bus. I don't run a fixed route. Uh, the buses only go when they're dispatched to go to where they need to go. Um, and the customers now are getting from point A to point B in 16 minutes instead of potentially an hour and a half if they had to wait for a transfer at the terminal to wait for the other hour for the other bus. Um, that, to me, that that's there's a balance there for on both sides as far as what efficiency means. And now the customers is totally in control of, of their schedule and transit schedule. So instead of waiting for um, a, a bus to come by based on a fixed schedule, they now have control. They are now dispatch. They are now fitting in their rides on transit when they want to go, not when transit says you want. And so here's a here's a question. What do you think? I mean, not not every municipality is running on demand or micro mobility or micro transit. What do you think is is the concern, like from 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 a transit manager's perspective? Well, absolutely. Uh, for this type of platform, one size doesn't fit all. Um, you could have a system that has a mix of a, an on-demand platform that ties into a fixed route. Um, for agencies that are uh, the size of Stratford, we only run a uh, half hour service from Monday to Saturday uh, with seven routes from Monday to Friday. So we're not, uh, we're not a large uh, service. We don't interline bus. It's one bus on one route for the whole 16 hour service day. Um, <clears throat> it's, it, it's, not necessarily, like I said, one size fits all. It could be combinations of, you know, a fixed uh, compared to an on-demand uh, that, that tie in and interline together. Uh, for Stratford, it was a matter of Sunday was was a, a typical day where ridership was low because it wasn't uh, necessarily efficient and it took you forever to, to get where you wanted to go. Um, so that size fits Stratford on for Sunday? Are there other uh, possibilities and potentials for um, to expand it in, in other uh, low volume parts of the day, whether it's in the morning or, or later at night, or even expanding a service uh, later in the evenings uh, 
we go to 10 o'clock uh, during the week and eight o'clock on, on a Saturday. Is there, is there a possibility that that type of platform could be introduced to expand service at a very reasonable or cheaper cost than what we would do on a fixed, on a fixed route. So um, it's, it's hard to take a cookie cutter approach to this type of platform because everyone's different. Everyone runs their service different. Um, there's certain points of the day that are different for everyone as far as volumes and ridership. Uh, but we found for, uh, for the municipality here that uh, the first kick at the can would be looking at Sunday because it, uh, it wasn't very efficient for everybody. Atore, do, what do you think the landscape looks like for transit for the next three to five years, given the impact of COVID? Has that, are you seeing maybe some of the requirements and regulations that maybe that had been in, in place for the last decade or more. Do you see those loosening up and shaking up a little bit or do you still think it's gonna be status quo going forward? That's a good question. Uh, I, I think with the COVID situation, I, I, don't, I think it's gonna take uh, transit agencies to think a little bit outside the box to get some of those customers back. And I just wanna kind of relate that back to the micro transit, the on-demand service when we, um, I want to say a comment about the efficiencies. Where I see the efficiencies in our system is we were running a dial a bus service in, in two parts. So we split the city in two and one bus would service one, one part and the, bus, the other bus would serve the other part. And they never kind of crisscross. So you would literally have to make still a connection if you're wanting to go from one end of the city to the other. The on-demand service has really reduced um, that problem because the entire city now it has become our you know landscape in terms of where you could go. So it's much more efficient in the in the fact that you get better area coverage. That if you were to provide that area same area coverage with conventional service, it would cost you a lot more. So in in terms of uh, actually saving uh, or comparing the on-demand service cost with the the uh, dollar bus service cost. I think it's probably about the, the same, but you're, you're providing a better service by having better area coverage. You're, you don't uh, have customers waiting a long time you know, to get a ride. So there's efficiencies that you gain uh, just by the fact that it's, it's a non-demand service and it gives you better coverage. In terms of COVID, well, our service is, is suffering. We're probably at about 30% ridership of what we normally would be if we compare um, the same time with uh, 2019. We're trying to think of how we could, you know, possibly increase our service levels. And anytime you want to look at increasing your frequencies on our commuter routes, for example, that go into downtown Edmonton, the ridership is not there. So you would be going against your own service standards to try and say, well, if I increase frequencies, maybe we'll get more riders. So you have to think about different types of uh, ways to get that increase. And some of the things that we've been doing is we've been getting a lot of requests from companies that employ a certain number of people and they have their own COVID protocols in place. So instead of starting work at maybe eight o'clock in the morning, they have their employees coming in at 10 o'clock in the morning and you can't come in early and you can't come in late because of the COVID restrictions within their own protocols. 
So they've been asking <clears throat> excuse me, us to kind of see what we can do. So we find that during this period in, in uh, uh, our transit life, uh, life cycle, we're doing a lot more customized types of things that we normally may not do under normal circumstances to try and uh, cope with, with ridership and perhaps get more people on our buses. So in the future, I think, and this is, you know, I'm just talking with my own experience and opinion, I think it has to be a, a, a whole gamut of services that a, a transit agency will provide. You're going to have a need for conventional services, which we do. We fill buses going into Edmonton under normal circumstances. We've got our local services, and, and I believe it was uh, um, uh, Michael that was uh, suggesting that, you know, people complain about seeing empty buses. Well, there's different ways to tackle that. You could do on-demand service maybe with a smaller vehicle. Um, I did some work when I was with uh, Edmonton Transit Service and we modeled a 15-passenger on-demand van, which has definitely lower cost than running a conventional bus to do your on-demand service. So I think if you start thinking outside the box and thinking about how you can have a, a whole different, uh, you know, pot of different types of services to meet your transit needs, you might start to bring some of those riders back. And, you know, I think on-demand does play a big part of it and vehicle type plays a big part of it. So we would be looking at perhaps smaller vehicles, um, you know, for our on-demand service in the future, right-sizing the buses, you know, 30 foot, uh, 40 foot, 60 foot, and, you know, to deliver a service where it's needed. So it, it seems to be a combination of a whole lot of factors that we're trying to prepare ourselves, you know, to, to deal with the future. Joel, how, how do you think, um, do you see a, a, a speed up in terms of your ability to make decisions and changes, you know, given that, that municipalities have to respond now to these ridership declines? Are people being, you know, like municipalities in transit changes are typically from what, you know, being, our Pantone was fairly new to the transit industry. And we noticed that it does take quite a bit of time to get changes made to service or technology and that type of thing. And, and I understand the reasons for that, but do you see a change in the, in the behavior of decision makers and, and, and budget approvers to help you maybe ad adapt more quickly? Uh, right, right now, I'm seeing, I, I will say, an escalated uh, rate of approval on uh, whether it be new technologies, whether it be new concepts, that type of thing, because uh, we serve four different cities, two different counties. Uh, at this point in time. So I have, I have a oversight board uh, that wants to see things happen quickly so that they don't think that their money is going to waste. And the ability to go ahead and implement, whether it be a new service, a new technology, uh, regardless of what it is, that everybody locally is putting things on the fast track to go ahead and get things approved because they want to see results right away so that we don't as we started to spiral into the lack of transit ridership in uh, February, March, April, May, June, um, we were on the backside uh, holding meetings to determine what we could do to put that ridership back on at least a leveling uh, um, amount as opposed to a dropping amount. And the ability to go ahead and get approvals has been very, very quickly. And even changing uh, one of our cities, we changed the 
we had three fixed routes in that city. We changed it to uh, two, two buses um, that are running the Pantonium software and they are more efficient. They are um, doing as much. They stabilize the ridership and the ridership is actually starting to increase now uh, based off of the fact that we were able to make that change so quickly um, with the support of the city and the city saying, yes, let's get it done now. Let's, let's, let's plug the holes. In, in the planning process, right now you're using how many zones for on-demand? One zone, one, one zone. zone right now. Um, do you think what we're doing in your area is microtransit? Oh yeah, I would, I would easily consider it microtransit. microtransit. Um, and I've got it to the point where now that, like I say, I've got four major cities that are looking, that I serve and the one city has gone all uh, microtransit through Pantonium. Um, the city right next to it is considering it now, right? They want to get it in for the 2021 uh, budget, which starts in a couple of months. I've got a uh, city to the south that has already said, yeah, we want to start looking at which areas uh, we can go ahead and get this microtransit put in because they see what it's been able to do to, like I say, plug the holes of ridership loss. So, so tran transit is changing is what you're saying. Oh, all, all across the board, all across the board. And, and to, to go back a little bit to um, the privatization conversation, um, I hate to take this back in time, but I would want people to consider when, you look, when you're having the conversation of privatization, if you've had the concept that your public transit is part of the infrastructure of your community, which is what I've driven into this area right here, um, why would you take parks and rec and privatize it? Why would you take your fire department and privatize it? Why would you take your police department and privatize it? I mean, you're, you're, you know, Michael's right. The uh, privatization is all about the bottom line and the bottom line is the bottom line. Um, so when we're talking about privatizing transit, um, that again gives me the heebie-jeebies of uh, unregulated you know, dollars, the only thing that we're looking at and uh, heck with customer service. I go, of course, goes to the extremes on that mentality. Um, but if we're going to, if we're going to make changes, we need to make changes that we can control um, and make sure that we're still putting out a quality product on time with quality results. Absolutely. Uh, <clears throat> Michael, uh, a lot of people don't know this, but Stratford's actually a fairly progressive city from a technology perspective. Um, you host the autonomous vehicle testing uh, uh, track for, for AVEN, right, for, in, in, for Ontario. Um, what other things are you looking at, you know, to help improve the efficiency um, of the transit system there? Well, I mean, in my mind, it's about offering the service as it is and, and trying to save some costs in, in the meantime. Now, pandemic aside, this was the Sunday on demand service. I actually started planning about a year, year and a half ago. It just the, the timing was interesting when things started to roll uh, out pandemic wise and it was still focused on on for many reasons not just COVID but for many reasons to get that launched on on a Sunday um, it's it's all about especially with uh, you know the the technology and it's not like dial a bus I mean it's been talked about and done for decades um, it had you know lots of moving parts back in the day um, now we, we have the technology to, to make this on demand or dial a bus. Uh, it, it's, all, it, it's all from here. 
Um, you can do anything you want. You're your own dispatcher. You're, you can set your own time and place. And I think it's, it's the technology because we're in that world now where everything's about technology. Uh, not too many people pick up a phone anymore or, and call. It's all something done by a PC or on a tablet or a laptop or on your phone. Um, it's all about making it seamless and easy to use um, without um, suffering of, of service. Um, it's, uh, it, it's, it's all about making it easy. And uh, when we launched on July 5th for on Sundays, um, people were ecstatic. Like, I, I can do this all on my phone. I can get a bus. I, can, I mean, you can do anything on your phone nowadays. There's an app for everything. Why shouldn't transit be any different? Um, and, and yeah, and bottom line is, is there, you know, besides the benefit for the customer, there's a benefit for the department. There's a benefit for the municipality, especially now uh, we're all starting budgets for next year and um, and we're all looking for some cost savings without having to suffer with less service than what we did before. So, so there's, there's the big question is, is how do we maintain uh, what we're doing and keep it sustainable um, doing the same with less, let alone doing more with less. Um, but I think these type of platforms are the more with, than with less in, in my mind. So I just want to check in with Luke and see how we're doing for time and, and Q&A to make sure that we do have enough time to kind of get to some questions. Um, uh, yeah, I think we're doing okay we on time. Uh, we have about 20 minutes left. I do have a question that it came in uh, from, a part, or from, a, from somebody, uh, just somebody emailed me this question. I thought this would be a good one for all the panelists, uh, or maybe one of you guys can, uh, can take this one, but it, it comes from Sally Gale, and she's a a manager for a nonprofit um, that does kind of a de demand response service, uh, I believe. And, and she asks, how do organizations like public transit agencies that have a very long uh, budgeting and funding, uh, very long and complex budgeting and funding structures like a public transit agency, how do well, those organizations convert a fixed route service, which is uh, she, she thinks that uh, a fixed route service is a very predictable cost. And I think that's true. You know, you know, this bus is going to run this route for, for this year and it's going to cost X amount of dollars. How do you, and that's fairly predictable. Um, but when you're providing an on-demand service that has a variable, um, it's so, it's so, it's an agile uh, type of service that you can kind of add and remove vehicles day to day. Um, and, and you could have spikes in riderships that you don't really have control over. Um, and we've seen that uh, happen. How do, you, how do you manage a budgeting process for these types of on-demand services? Uh, is, there, is there a different approach or, or how, do you, how do you look at it uh, like that? And I don't know if any of you wanna take a stab at that. Yeah, why don't we start with the Tory in St. Albert? Yeah, okay. Yeah, and you must have, yeah, yeah. You have some experience <laughs> with that already. Okay, so that's a great question. Um, when I was working with Edmonton Transit Services, uh, they're in the middle of a complete network redesign. So some communities, based on their new standards, were left isolated without some transit services, and there were transit rides. So we knew there maybe were about two to 300 
riders within those communities that now had very little access to transit and we wanted to offer a different alternative to them and one of the alternatives was on demand. So without having any dynamic scheduling software like Pantonium or some of the other companies out there, I managed to uh, model it manually because I have a scheduling background as well. I looked at the number of passengers that I needed to carry over the busiest hour and if I'm using a I modeled a 15 passenger van, I modeled the Uber, Lyft, and a 30 foot bus. And, you know, I just looked at the time I would need for each, possibly for each one of those uh, different types of, of uh, vehicles. And it was slightly different, of course, if you have lower capacity. And then I managed to figure, you know, figure out how I would possibly pick up all these people that I needed to pick up and calculated the number of hours and then, you know, just made some assumptions and costed out each type of a vehicle that was needed to deliver this service. And of course, I was able to get some kind of a, a, of a fairly valid estimate on the number of hours and what the cost would be per hour to deliver that service. And, and I came up with a number and uh, we asked uh, the private sector to, for some information and said, you know, take a look at this and see if these numbers are fairly decent or not. And, and apparently the numbers were pretty good. So there's ways of doing it without going crazy. And, um, you know, if you don't have the ability to do that, for example, or you don't have staff or the time to do that, you might even put it out there to the private sector to, to come up with a, uh, an estimate for you, which is also a great way to do it. Um, that's the way we did it there. And then in St. Albert, it was fairly simple because we just replaced the dial-a-bus one for one. Uh, we had two dial-a-buses out there. So we, we have two buses out there for our on-demand service. It was a little bit easier because we knew how many hours we were using with the dial-a-bus. And we just basically kept everything more or less the same and um, just went with uh, our Pantonium's recommendation, which is, you know, you can expand your service coverage. And, and that's the biggest benefit that I see right now is that we can provide better service coverage in comparison to what we would need in resources from a conventional side. I hope that answers. Yeah, that, that's a great, a great answer. Thank you. And uh, I do have a, a, a question of my own. And, and sorry, Jeremy, if, uh, if I'm delaying things, because we do have a lot, quite a few uh, open questions for the audience. But this is just for me. And it, just in the age of COVID, you know, what is a low performing route? Because, because let's, you know, we all have kind of an idea of what a good route is in, you know, in fixed route transit lands, which is, I think it's usually around 10 to 15 riders per service hour, I think is the industry standard. But now across the board, if you're, you can't even, in some areas, you can't even put that many people on a bus at the same time anymore. So, so really what is, assuming that this pandemic is going to continue for the next you know, a year or so uh, where we'll have to do some social distancing and the riders and the ridership increases will probably be tepid as people uh, slowly gain confidence to, to get back in the transit. What is a low performing route in the in this the day and age? Um, so maybe I'll start with Joel. I saw you nodding, so I'm going to pick you out. <laughs> because because they're all low performing routes. I mean, they, they really are. Yeah. I mean, I, I, how can I actually delineate between one and the other, one and the other right now? Um, but what I'm actually doing is I'm taking a look at the entire system as a whole and saying, okay, where can I put different programs in um, to, like I say, 
plug the holes of loss and what can I do from my end to be as, as effective as possible in my community uh, to provide the best quality transit that I can. And if it means leaving a, a fixed route on that's low performing and picking another area where I can put on-demand transit, um, that's what I'm going to be doing. If it means that I have to add another uh, bus on so that I can maintain those social distances, that's what I'm going to be doing. Um, because right now, today, they are all low performing routes. And I can't sit, I personally can't set that standard anymore. Um, Pre-COVID, yeah, we had a standard. Um, now, in today's day and age, uh, that standard, you might as well water it up, throw it out the window and never look at it again. All right. Well, thank you for that. Yeah, I think that's I think that's what I see across the board on the industry is, is yeah, the numbers that we used to hold uh, sacrosanct are now irrelevant. And uh, Jeremy, I think, did you have any other questions or, or comments or can we go to the uh, the audience Q&A? Well, I'm looking at the Q&A now and I'm just going to answer that I'm going to start with the most upvoted question from uh, Willem Klippenhauer. And I, I think it's actually a really good question. And it's um, uh, on-demand projects look very different depending on the types of vehicles um, and the service standards, service areas, service type, you know, is it door to door, stop to stop, stop to door, you know, paratransit, specialized transit, all sorts of different things, right? Uh, is, it, is it one zone? Is it multi-zoned? Uh, do you use, you know, sedans versus 30, 30 or 40 foot buses? So do you find that there is confusion among the public, you know, politicians, transit managers, riders, about the differences between these configurations and do you think that contributes to the reaction of the idea of privatization because there's a lack of clarity on what this actually means and i'll go with mike michael um i mean stratford's a, a municipality of thirty-three thousand, so it's um uh, it's it's not a large uh municipality um we, when we started the Sunday uh, on demand, it was stop to stop. So we have 279 bus stops. Um, we've kind of left the door to door aspect of it to uh, the parallel transit mobility bus, which I, I also look after as well um, for those that needed a little bit more assistance. But um, it, was, it was very seamless as far as switching to that kind of, of platform. Um, we just use the existing bus stops that all transit riders already know where the bus stops are. Um, and they know where they need to go to and where the bus stops are at, at that. So it was, it was simple to do that way. Um, and the, the transition, uh, like I said, was, was very simple. It was very quick. Um, I mean, we did focus heavily on the marketing aspect a few weeks out just to make sure everyone got uh, as much as they could and we would talk um, it was um, it was it was easy to do um, and wasn't complicated uh, but in, in general do you think that folks that are maybe are not as as involved in transit day to day do you think they understand what on demand or micro transit really is like do they do you do they understand there's so many nuances and, and how do we clarify that message is, is kind of like, I think that's Willem's, Willem's uh, uh, question. So. Um, do, do people know of it? Um, do they kind of compare it if they know about Uber, uh, maybe or Lyft or, or the, uh, those types of services? I think they kind of relate it to just kind of 
uh, Uberish uh, on a 30 or 35 footer or 40 foot bus. Um, I think at least from the comments that, that I received, even from people that don't use transit is uh, one of, uh, of great acceptance as far as what we're trying to do, whether it was, you know, trying to cut down on, on emissions um, uh, or just cost, right, to the municipality as far as how we operate, because it, it is a lower cost. Um, so I got comments from uh, transit ridership um, that were very happy with it as far as the efficiency. And I even have a lot of comments from ones that aren't transit users that understand what we're trying to do because they can kind of relate it to things on a smaller scale, like a, a an Uber or a Lyft. We're just doing it more in mass and, and those other platforms. So it sounds like, you know, Uber had a fairly strong media recognition, but maybe as more of these projects roll out and get more airtime, people will start to understand what on-demand transit actually means from a transit perspective. Correct. Uh, Atori, we have another upvote. We have an upvote that's actually uh, directly uh, sent to you. And it's, um, what has the adjustment with customers been like to the Pantonium on-demand model? And what has been the most challenging aspect, either for the riders or the agency? And then a third question, um, what do you anticipate it will save you in public funds uh, by implementing on-demand? That's a great question. So we did... Our biggest concern was how, we're, how are we going to communicate with the public on how to book a ride or you know, what the on-demand service is all about. So once we did a, a, all of our communications, and it was difficult in the time of COVID because we would probably have gone out and done some public engagement and showed people at various locations throughout the city, this is what we're proposing, this is how you would use this system, give us some feedback, but we couldn't do that because of COVID. So we relied heavily on our website and uh, just taking phone calls. The biggest adjustment has been with people booking the trip, not knowing how to book a trip and literally our customer service staff having to take them through that process. Many customers uh, would just call our staff and have our staff book the trips for them, but our staff is excellent and they would show them literally take all the time that was needed to, to help them out and teach them how to book a trip. Um, some confusion over where, to be, where you're gonna be picked up, uh, making connections from, if you're coming off a conventional route at one of our transit centers, a commuter route, will that on-demand bus be there waiting? When we would say, no, you have to still book your trip. So it's basically the communication piece on how this works with all the varying different possibilities that you can't possibly plan for. But once you get uh, those issues or concerns being raised, it's how you deal with those that make the customer experience a lot better for them. So in our first couple of months, we got a ton of phone calls. We have people that don't have a phone. We have people that don't have a, a computer at home. And you know we're not here at nine o'clock at night to take a phone call and say, can you book a trip for me? So it was a bit challenging in that respect on how do we deal with these people. Um, honestly, once a couple of months went by, uh, our calls to our customer call center here and customer service reps have gone down tremendously. I'd say we're probably uh, 
taking more than 50% less calls on, on the, the on-demand service or very few calls now. It's usually, can you help me book a trip because I don't have a computer or a cell phone at this point. So the biggest, I think, uh, issue for us was because of COVID and we couldn't go out there is how to train the customer to use the app to book a trip or their computer and on our website to book a trip. I think that was the biggest obstacle. We haven't had too many complaints as to, well, you know, your dollar bus service was a lot better in comparison, mostly it was related on how to use the on-demand service. In terms of cost, um, we don't have a whole lot of information because we've only been operating this since the end of July. So we're not in a position to really evaluate the effects on our cost because I don't believe we have our entire customer base because of COVID. So we're still running around the same percentage in terms of ridership as we are with our conventional routes. We're still running at about 30%, you know, uh, with our on-demand services, what we normally got in terms of ridership with our dial bus which is in line with everything else that we offer in terms of service. So at around the six month mark, we're gonna do a complete evaluation if we're, you know, COVID uh, would allow for that and look at the, the cost and compare the costs and, and so forth. But it, it's not that easy to do right now because I don't believe we have our full ridership uh, capabilities and, uh, and what we anticipated in terms of, uh, of rides. And I think to be fair, I think I would like to get an answer from Joel and Mike also on what has been, what has been the most challenging aspect um, for you or for the ridership um, when deploying an, an on-demand uh, transit model. Joel, uh, go start with you. I'm going to say the education of the workforce. Um, right now we've got, uh, let's see, we've got Pantonium, Paseo, and Paraplan. We've got three programs that we're using here. We've got uh, Paraplan for our ADA, uh, Americans with Disabilities Act uh, related um, complementary paratransit. We've got Paseo, which is our fixed route software. Now we're throwing another bit of software at the employees and getting the employees to understand the software on the bus um, as, as they are doing their pickups and their deliveries. Uh, then also on the back side, on the non-customer non facing side was the, um, like Tori was saying, being able to educate a rider on how to book a trip. Our first few months, um, we had to make sure that every dispatcher, anybody who picked up a phone, um, knew how to teach somebody to uh, book a trip. I mean, it comes down to that, uh, you know, give a fish, teach to fish type of mentality. And we found out that the more we could spend on that first phone call with an individual on how to walk them through booking their own trip, we would almost never hear from them a second time because we had to make sure it was done thoroughly. And that was the biggest challenge is making sure that our guys here knew exactly what to say, how to say it, so that it could be understood by anybody uh, from flip phone technology to no computer technology to um, the latest and greatest in uh, smartphones. And now that those conversations have occurred almost a year later, um, our only phone calls when it comes to ODT are people that just don't have computer technology. Um, 
and yeah, there's still a few of them out there, but uh, that was probably the biggest challenge that we had is getting drivers, uh, operators on one side to switch between the three Ps, Pantone and Paraplan and Passio, and their mindset of what they were doing for the day. And then also getting the staff on the backside to be able to educate the people on the other end of the phone on how to walk through that programming. That's great notes. Uh, Mike, I'm actually gonna give you a different question. Uh, we have an upvoted question. Um, it it's, relates to the US, but I think actually North America as a whole, transit agencies receive hundreds of billions of dollars in federal aid. Um, and also there is now some new funding to mitigate the impacts of COVID. How can transit agencies be incentivized or nudged, pushed to explore these types of efficiencies that you're seeing with on-demand? So if they're not already doing it and they're maybe reluctant to do it, what are other ways that you can nudge, you know, your, your colleagues or, or maybe, maybe um, uh, government should be nudging folks to pursue these instead of with, you know, a stick, are there other ways to do this? So, uh, well, as with anything, money, money speaks, money talks, right? So, um, and uh, in one thing, it's, it's a lot of lobbying that needs to be done um, in, in the background or in the forefront, as far as getting, um, everybody on the same page as, as, as far as what our wants are, what our needs are, and, and not just the, the agencies, but I mean, we also speak for the public that is the ridership. Um, it, it's very important that, um, to be innovative, such as Stratford, we have a lot of innovative things that happen here, a transit uh, with on-demand and other um, technology type things. Um, uh, it is not new to the, to the residents here. Um, and it's, it's, it wasn't that hard for people to get on board as far as how to learn how to, how to use this type of platform. But, but I think as far as, as funding, it, it's, uh, now, of course, I can't speak for what's going on in, in the U.S., but it, it's always about funding. And, and the governments here, you know, provincially and um, federally, have, um, through the ICIP program, has, uh, they have put a lot of, of funding out there um, for capital, for, I mean, not for, um, you know, operating, of course, but um, they have, in the, in the past, uh, put out um, quite a few dollars to, to get um, like a Stratford, a little bit more updated compared to the bigger centers, uh, which is re real important. I, I mean, transit, you, you like to have transit when you go from city to city to offer the same service, um, whether it's seven routes or whether it's 85 routes or 220 routes, you wanna make sure it's sustainable, it's the same, but all looks the same uh, for the most part and offers the same same type of service. Smaller municipalities um, don't necessarily always have the capital to do these um, upgrades, whether it's new buses, whether it's technology or whatever it might be, uh, the infrastructure behind it, that sometimes there just isn't a lot there. So. Um, it's, it's a matter of, of nudging um, political parties to, you know, you, you have to put your hand up um, uh, sometimes and say, hey, you know what, we, we need this, uh, our neighbors have this, we could really use this. Um, it, it's important, the lobbying aspect as far as you got to keep transit in the forefront. And whether that's for an on-demand uh, platform um, or, or, or 
expanding routes or putting in new service or, or whatever the case may be or new buses. I think it's important that that uh, transit for whatever its wants and needs, we're at the, at the front of the line because it's, it's all about uh, being funded, especially for like myself in a small municipality that doesn't have access to, uh, to that type of financial means. So uh, thank you, I, I, we're, we're coming over our, our time limit just by a couple of minutes, but uh, we do.